So I have to confess something. First of all, before I do confess something, uh, let me wait until Craig gets a little further away from me. That way he won't come back up here and sock me in the head. Um, <clears throat> let me first say this. Let me first say that we are absolutely grateful for those of you that are watching us on the live stream. Everybody say hello, live stream folks. Gosh, we're so happy that you're watching us. Um, I know I tune in with you all the time uh, to like the later recordings of this live stream uh, because I'm normally teaching at this time of the day. Um, oh, Craig just left, so it's not fun. I can't really do it with him anyway. I fooled him a little bit. It's a funny story, but I'll have to tell him afterwards. Okay, let's go to the book of 1 Thessalonians. We are going to be tonight in chapter 5. Now, for you prophecy people, these are, this is a passage that is very familiar, right? It has some significant familiarity to you. Um, you're more familiar typically with the passage like the end of 1 Corinthians chapter, or 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, but um, 5 has got some pretty cool things for us to sort of draw from and gather from, so let's pray, let's ask the Lord to go before us as we get into his word, and let's just jump right into it. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for your word, and we thank you for what your word does for us, Lord. It brings us insight, it renews us, it gives us grace, strength, Lord. And, and Lord, we're thankful for the hope that we have that you are coming back for your church. Lord, this is a great hope. And it's one that brings to us, Lord, something significant that we can hold on to because your goodness and your kindness and your mercy and your grace is something that we see through and through. It's, it's one of the pictures that we gather throughout the whole uh, scriptures that's given to us, Lord, throughout the whole volume of the book, Lord. We know that it's written of you, and we're thankful for that. So, Lord, we just pray now. I pray that the words that I share would be your words, Lord, and not mine, and that, Father, uh, Lord, we would walk away closer to you than when we came in, and we pray that we would be impacted and just blessed beyond anything that we can imagine, Lord, that we would grow in you. So, Father, we love you, God. We thank you, and we ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, I love, again, I've told you this before, the Apostle Paul is one of my favorite characters in the Bible. For those of you that were here with me uh, in the first service or second or third uh, this morning, I talked a little bit about that. And I think that it's important as we go through a passage like the one that we're about to enter into for just a second, I think it's important to talk about what the mindset of the early church was, particularly the audience that is receiving what Paul is writing here on paper to them. Okay, uh, I think that it's important to understand that the Thessalonians were a group of people who were obviously just like us and just like most of the world were going through a time of great disparity. They were going through a time of great difficulty because the world that was surrounding them, the environment that was around them was one that lended itself to just a lot of bad news, right? And so we live in a world where we're getting lots of bad news and fake news, if you know what I mean, right? I think they're all kind of coupled together. And oftentimes, it would seem as though every single time we turn on the TV, every single time we pick up the phone from a family member that's calling us, every single time we have a discussion with another person about the things that are going on in this world, it just seems to be getting darker and darker and darker and darker and oftentimes more depressing. Somebody came to me recently and they said, you know, Pastor James, I just don't know what to do. This world seems to be getting darker than it ever has before. And I, and I always say this to them, and this is a clear statement to make. I think it's an important statement to make. This world has always been evil. This world has always been dark, right? I mean, if you really think about what's going on in today's world, it's a more sophisticated, more uh, cohesive version of all the things that we saw in the 60s right? A general rebellion. Uh, I, you look at the sociological infrastructure that was created by those in the 60s versus the one that exists today. It's almost exactly the same thing. The only difference is in our time today is we have instant news. We know when things are going on around the world as it's happening. We're not having to wait a bunch of time before we get the news. We're getting it right away. And in essence, it would seem as though because of the crazy overload of news that exists, it's driving us to a place of great greater and deeper depression because all we think about is the bad stuff. I mean, think about it. Listen, the news is not going to air. You ever wonder this? You ever wonder why the news does not air good news? 
The only time you're going to see good news on the news is at the very end of the news special, the news show, and at the end it'll be like a 30, 30 second, hey, look, this guy gave money to this kid, and now this kid's happy. Ah, back to murder, you know? That's what happens. And so every time you turn on the news, every time you flip open the newspaper, you hear and read bad because bad sells, right? Let's, let's face it, right? Everybody loves to rubberneck. You know what I mean when I say that? They're all a bunch of rubberneckers. You know, I, I remember when I, before I, I joined the police department, I worked with the police department for years and years and years. You know, as a kid, all you did was you wanted to just rubberneck. What's going on? Daddy, stop the car. Let's see what's happening. Let's, and my dad would say in his very strong Middle Eastern accent, we are not stopping the car. If we do, it will be like everybody else that is slowing down traffic. You know? Man, and we try to stick our head out like dogs, you know, trying to look at what's going on and all that. And then when I joined the police department, I, I remembered this. It was a very distinct memory I had. I remember getting irritated by people stopping their cars and even being bothered by people rubbernecking because I used to live in that all day, every day. I was the one that got called to the bad news, and I was tired of hearing the bad news and seeing the bad news, especially when there was a day where I didn't want any bad news, you know? But the world loves it, you know? When I was in high school, we would run around and we would tell people on the high school campus, hey, we're going to have a Bible study. I'm going to teach a Bible study in 10 minutes. And we literally, I mean, it was like street evangelism during the lunch break of my high school uh, time, in my, especially my senior year. And, and I would go, come on, we're going to have a Bible study. And everyone, ah, nerd, loser, whatever, fatty, get out of here, you know, whatever. That's what they would do. But man, let me tell you, the very second you heard something like this, Dude, there's a riot in the quad. Tons of people like, whoosh, run towards to see the fight. Why? Because human nature, we love, we love bad news. We love it. We, we, look, I cannot begin to tell you how much this is indicative of human nature today. But let me say what's different. Let me talk about for just a second what's different about the times that we are in today versus the times that we were in even 25 or 30 years ago. A couple things you should be aware of. The first thing that's different about the times that we live in today is knowledge has increased substantially. Now, because knowledge has increased substantially, what has also increased substantially is our ability to be able to bring information into our brains, into our minds, into our hearts, and retain it at levels that mankind was not able to do so before because the conditioning necessary to be able to retain such information did not exist back then. For example, if you did not have the ability to pull down a bunch of information at a rapid pace, your brain is not calculated to be able or metered, so to speak, to be able to download it because you have not conditioned it to do it. If you live in a world where that's happening every five seconds, your brain becomes a lot easier doing it, right? Think about this. I have parents that tell me all the time, well, these younger kids, my kids, they just know so much about computers and I don't, there's nothing I could possibly know. They're so much smarter than me and they just know so much. And I always tell them the same thing. Eh! You can say that till you're blue in the face. But truth be told, they are just simply conditioned differently than you've been conditioned. And if you will allow yourself to be conditioned with the same mechanisms that have conditioned them, your ability to be able to retain and process that information will change substantially. For people that were raised in the 40s, they could never even begin to imagine what it would look like or feel like to get headline news every five seconds. And I'm not exaggerating. Back then, you got headline news every five days. So that's the one thing, one of the things that's different in today's world. You know one of the other things that's different in today's world? See, back then, back then, the pace was a lot different. Now, when I say that, I mean the pace was a lot different to and at every level. Everything was slower. Now, the reason why that was the case is, again, the same reason that I brought up in the first place. 
and that is the conditioning of the culture that existed back then was much different than the conditioning that we see today. See, back then, tell me where there's a drive-through. There's no such thing as a drive-through in the early 40s, late 30s. What is a drive-through? That doesn't make sense. Maybe, maybe, maybe as you got a little bit later into the World War II era, and post you had the drive-ins, right? You had the places where you'd go, you park your car, and then the, someone would come out on roller skates if they really wanted to be fast and efficient, you know? You maybe had those type of situations because we were, we were becoming more and more a car culture. Who ever heard of airmail back then? Who ever heard of anything like email? When you wrote a letter, you'd be lucky to get that letter. If someone was in another country, you'd be lucky to get that letter within 30 or 40 days. The pace is a lot faster because the technology that we have associated with what, we, with what exists today makes it a lot faster. Different picture. By the way, the Bible warned us of those two things. Here's the other thing that's different about today. What's different about today is the news associated with what we call the Holy Land is at a completely different level than it was even 15 years ago. When I started studying the Bible 25 years ago, almost 26 years ago, I would be blessed out of my brain if I could find two headline news stories that related to the Temple Mount a year. Two a year. And man, we'd be in hog heaven. Today, we're getting 50 a day. Easy 50 a day. Today, the things that we're seeing across the Middle East is so significant and it is so voracious at a pace. It is so fast. It is so ex just insanely speedy that there's so much that we don't even know where we're going. You could sit down and point at one news story and spend time on how significant that can be biblically and forget about the 6,000 more that are going on, all of which have some kind of biblical significance. Now, here's the danger that is resurrected from all of that. See, back then, Paul even knew the dangers that would exist as we got closer to the time. But he also knew this. He also knew that one of the greatest dangers that would exist as we got closer to that time is our attitude concerning the particular coming of Jesus Christ. The first issue that he addresses in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is he addresses the issue that is created by the disparity that is felt because of the growing darkness and evil that they were observing in the world. He basically says this. He says, listen, Christ is going to come back. He's going to return for his church. The dead in Christ are going to rise first. Those that are alive and remain will be taken up. And then he gives this exhortation. In the Greek, in verse 18 of chapter 4, he says this. It's the present active imperative. In other words, you are ordered to do this. It is a command. I want you to do this on an ongoing basis. He says, comfort one another with these words. What are they being comforted from, folks? Anybody ever asked that question going through 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? What are they being comforted from? They are being comforted from the disparity that they were experiencing on a daily basis as they were watching evil beginning to take place. And by the way, folks, evil was not growing during that time. What was growing in that time is their sensitivity to it. That's what was growing. And just like our sensitivity to the evil in this world is growing, we're also beginning to see it increase at a rate that is so rapid that what's beginning to happen now, and Paul knew this would happen, is we are beginning to develop a callous. To the point now where everything becomes palatable to us. Nothing, nothing, nothing is offensive anymore. And we very easily go along with the show. Now Paul needed to address that. So he shared these specific words in 1 Thessalonians. 
And by the way, let me just add a preface to this before we read these words. If you think for a second that Christ could not come at any moment right now, forgive me for saying this, you're crazy. You're out of your mind. I cannot begin to describe to you how quickly things have come together and are continuing to come together. When the nation of Israel was reestablished in the 40s, after it not being a real nation for thousands of years, people thought that was impossible and could never happen and would never happen. And when it did happen, Christians all over the world were saying, yep, we knew. Five years ago, when I started, maybe six years ago, when I started answering questions on the radio for pastor's perspective, Don Stewart proclaimed to me the czar of Middle Eastern affairs because my mom and dad were born and raised in Egypt. Okay. We got this question, and we would answer this question, and this question that we received would earn us lots of hate mail. Here was the question. Pastor James, are you concerned with ISIS? My answer was the same. Of course I'm concerned with ISIS. ISIS is Islamic. If they are fundamentalists of the Quran, then they believe in death and murder. They believe in lying and deception. If you believe in the fundamentals of the Quran, you believe in all of those things. You believe in a false god whose name is Allah, and you believe in violence to anybody that opposes Allah. Very simple. Truth. So I'm worried about ISIS in that respect. Am I worried about them with respect to what we see in future Bible prophecy? Actually, quite frankly, I'm not. Who I'm more worried about is I'm more worried about, now mind you, five or six years ago we were saying this, I'm more worried about Iran and I'm more worried about their interaction with Russia, and I'm more worried about Syria. And we always used to throw in Turkey, and we would get hate mail. You're nuts. You're crazy. You're never going to see Iran interacting with Russia. You're never going to see them hanging out in Syria, and you sure as heck are not going to see Turkey start being unfriendly with Israel because of some of their associated interests. It's never going to happen. Woo! Aren't those guys eating their words right now? Look at what's happening. Look at the existence of all of these nations and how they're beginning to formulate and how they're beginning to develop. I heard a radio show of me speaking uh, years ago where I kind of got off on a tangent and I got carried away about what Obama was doing when he drew the red line. Remember when he drew the red line in the sand, right? Now, I got attached to President Obama. I was sad when he left office because I prayed for him every day, and you kind of get attached to somebody when, when they do that, right? You sh we should be praying for every U.S. president that we have. They're special, and they're precious, and we should love them and pray for them, right? So this is not me putting down President Obama. Please don't think that. But he was talking about drawing a red line in the sand, and he never crossed that red line. When they crossed the red line, he never crossed back. You remember that? I remember making a comment. This is eerie. This is scary. It aired on one of our radio shows recently. And this was from six or seven years ago. Whenever that happened, I said, here's my fear, guys. This is what's going to happen. Syria crossed the red line. Obama's not doing anything about it. We're going to see the rise of some kind of an independent Islamic group, ISIS. They're going to get really active. They're going to get really crazy. The Sunni are going to uprise, they're the, they're the larger percentage of the Muslims, and eventually Russia is going to step in because our president hasn't, and he is going to offer to fix this mess. And nations like Iran are going to join them and be happy about it, and we're going to see the beginning of Ezekiel take place. Now, am I a prophet or the son of a prophet? Certainly not. But we know what the scriptures tell us, right? We know that what the scriptures say is true. We know it. Paul knew it. Paul was distinctly aware of the fact that Christ's coming 
was sooner than later. And the one thing that he felt most important for the church to know in that was not even necessarily the details associated with the coming of Christ. It was more important to him for the body of Christ to understand the mindset in which we should have, the mindset, the mentality, when we approach the final days. Now, Paul makes these declarations to the Thessalonian church in chapter 4 concerning Christ's coming and what was going to happen. He gives us the instruction to give hope to one another, to encourage one another with these words. And then he says something interesting in chapter 5, and I want you to catch this. There's one word I want you to be mindful of as we go through this chapter, and that's this, sober. Sober. Let's talk about this. He says, but of the times and the seasons, brethren... You have no need that I write unto you. Now, why, why doesn't he have a need to write to us about the times and the seasons? Let me just stop there. Well, because, duh, we know what the times and the seasons are. We don't know the exact days, but we certainly know that the season is around the corner. We know when Christ is going to come back. We know Christ gives us the warning. He says, look, watch out for these things. And just like when you see a fig coming off of a tree, you know that the summer is near. When you hear about these things, when you see these things happening, you know my return is near. You're not going to know the day or the hour, but you know it's around the corner. Okay, fair enough. Paul says, you know these things. You don't need, you don't have a need for me to expound upon these things. You know that they're happening. But he says, for yourselves know perfectly. Okay, perfectly means this. When he says for yourselves know perfectly, in the Greek, what it means is pretty much what it implies in the English. You understand wholly. There is no deficit in your knowledge concerning this variable. There's not a, any part of you or any part of your understanding that is diminished in your knowledge concerning this particular matter. You should know this and you should know it wholly and completely. Just like, listen, I love my beautiful wife, right? You'll never catch me going up to my wife going, uh, what's your name, baby? That might be the end of my life. <laughs> right? I know my wife. I know my wife quite well. She knows me better than anybody else other than the Lord. There is a knowledge of one another that we carry that is complete. Now, don't get me wrong, we're still learning. One of my favorite questions to ask my wife is, Baby, what color is the sky in your world? You know? <laughs> because we're so different, you know? Our knowledge of one another continues to grow, certainly. But truth be told, we have a familiarity with one another that is a completed familiarity. Paul says, you've been clued in on these facts, they are whole to you. They are facts that just should come to you like the, just literally it should come to you like it's nobody's business, it should be it. I had somebody come up to me recently. Matter of fact, at our church picnic the other day, they said, you know, Pastor James, uh, we started coming to, to the church over there at Signal Hill, and, and, and the main reason why we started coming was because we were going to another church for 13 years, and um, they never taught prophecy. And I was heartbroken when they said that to me. Uh, the thought process in my mind was, well, then that must mean they didn't teach 80% of the Bible. Because 80% of the Bible is prophetic. Jesus was prophesied concerning, right? All of the things that we read about in the Bible, oftentimes you'll see them prophesied before they happen. If you read through the book of Isaiah, most of the things that Isaiah prophesied about happened during the time of Jeremiah and Daniel and their tenure, hundreds and thousands of years, not thousands, hundreds of years before Isaiah was even, or before these guys were even born, Isaiah was talking about these things. There are some conversations concerning people that have taken place thousands of years before they've happened. The Bible is all prophecy for the most part. So Paul says, if you've been taught the word of God, these are things that you know completely. You know them wholly. So I don't have to rehearse these to you. They're the basics. So you know this perfectly, that the day of the Lord, you ready for this? The day of the Lord, so cometh as a thief in the night. Okay, let's talk about how a thief comes in the night. Anybody remember how a thief comes in the night? Hopefully you don't, because hopefully you've not experienced it. But when a thief comes in the night, it's not a really nice picture. 
Paul is doing something interesting here. It might be something you might not be familiar with. I've had people kind of tear this apart and say, well, God is, Paul is calling God a thief. Like he's going to come like he, you're going to get jacked. Check your pockets. You know what I mean? No, that's not what's happening here. Okay. What's actually happening is this is a beautiful picture of the Hebrew poetic culture in which Paul was raised. Paul is taking something that everybody is commonly familiar with and he is associating it with maybe a concept that somebody might not be as familiar with. He's making a declaration. When a thief comes into your house, you don't know he's coming into your house, right? And we also know that when he comes into your house, it's unexpected. It's when you least expect it. Thieves don't knock on your door and go, Hey, uh, hi, Mr. Uh, Cadiz. Listen, uh, I was going to come into your house and steal everything valuable in it tomorrow at 2 p.m. Is that okay with you? Sure, no problem. I've got my nice big Bertha gun waiting for you, pal. No one does that. Come on. They don't do that kind of mess. They break in. You don't know about it. They're quiet. They want to get in. They want to get out. It's sudden. And when you come back, you feel so violated don't you how many have been a victim of theft in one way or another or burglary like in your house you come into your home and you feel so incredibly violated the, some of the questions you begin to ask yourself is what could i have done to prepare for this i should have known better did i lock my house did i lock the door what there's no signs of forced entry did i mess this up did i open my house up did i all, you all those questions begin to go in your mind why because you never expected it and you never thought it was a possibility All these people that say, all you people that talk about Jesus coming back, you're crazy. Well, yeah, that makes sense that you're saying that. But here's the thing. When he comes back and it is going to be like a thief in the night and you did not expect it and it was when nobody announced it and it was when you didn't, it was when you absolutely least expected it, don't be surprised. Because he will come and he's going to come suddenly. He's going to come quickly and we are not going to, it is going to be like it just came out of nowhere. Now for Christians... There's an aspect of that that, yes, he's going to come like he just came out of nowhere, but we should be expecting it. Paul's going to talk about this right now. Look what he says. He says, for when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. So they're going to come around, they're going to go, we're not at the end of the world, come on! They're going to have those moments like they did in the 80s. Remember when they were trying to feed all those kids in Ethiopia, you know, where Stevie Wonder gets on the TV, we are the world, we are God's children, you know, and they're all singing, and Michael Jackson, and they're all dancing, and they're just singing and glorifying, you know, and oh, come on, we're going to collect money, we're going to feed the whole world. And there was a period of time in the 80s, I remember when, when, when everybody was thinking, man, the world is becoming better, we're going to feed everybody, starving is going to go away, and everything's going to be wonderful, and we're going to be one big happy world. Fake news, fake news, uh, wrong. Everybody's talking about peace in the Middle East. Oh, we're going to have peace and oh, it's going to be wonderful. Yeah, for a second. We're becoming more global. Why can't we all just get along? In the words of the famous Rodney King, you know. Why can't we all just be one another, just unified? And, and man, it's going to seem that way. We're going to see more sophisticated and we're going to, we're not Neanderthals anymore, people. We live in a global world, in a global economy. I can, I can Skype somebody or FaceTime somebody and talk to them while they're in another part of the hemisphere. And come on, we live in a world like this. Why can't we all just get along? When our president is brilliant enough to go talk, you know, the North Korean dictator out of nuclear war, this should be a world full of peace. And God bless President Trump for doing that. God bless him. Seriously, what an amazing challenge. What a feat. But let me tell you, but let me tell you, if you think your faith and trust is going to be in him bringing peace to this world, you've got something else coming. Nobody is going to bring peace to this world other than the Prince of Peace. And before that happens, there's going to be destruction. It's... It, we look at this and, 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 and the world is going to continue to say that. They're going to say, you guys are crazy. You're the whack jobs. You're the, you're the kooks. A person like Pastor Tom who gets up here and speaks all the time, 
They look at guys like him and Don and, and, and Barry and, and me and other guys that are constantly talking about prophecy, and you know what they say? They say, you're one of those kooks. You're one of those guys that's just absolutely nuts. You're crazy until it actually happens. And then no one's so crazy, are they? I mean, what happened in 1492? In 1492, Columbus did what? He sailed the ocean blue. You know what they called that Jewish man a kook? They called him a nut job. Hey, dummy, you're going to fall off the edge of the world. Guess they realized they were wrong. People are going to do that till the day Christ comes back. You're going to have a whole world around you that are going to say, you're crazy. This world is becoming more peaceful. I was talking to a very dear relative of mine, somebody that I pray for on a regular basis, somebody I love tremendously. And I made the point that things are getting darker and they're getting worse in this world, and he begged to differ with me. He said, you know, I just read a really interesting book. I'd like for you to read it. Okay. And the book, basically, the premise of the book is that the world is getting more peaceful. Things really aren't as bad. Your definition of peace is quite interesting, isn't it? I think the last statistic I read, just talk about Islam alone, the last statistic I read, 700, ready for this? 700,000 deaths at the hand of Islam has taken place, has taken place in this world, ready? In the last 100 years. Half of those in the last 45 And you think, that's a crazy number. No one can die at that. No, not, come on, that many people can't die all at once. Have you forgotten world history? Have you forgotten what Hitler did in the Holocaust? Have you forgotten what Stalin and all these other guys? Come on. We lost more soldiers of that number in World War II, U.S. soldiers. You think about that for a second. You think about the significant loss and how bad it's becoming. And yet we carry the understanding or the assertion that things are actually getting better? You'd be wrong. Paul told us this, guys. He said the world is going to say peace and safety. The world is going to say everything's okay. Let's go to Disneyland. Nothing wrong going to Disneyland, but you know what I mean, you know? Let's escape. Let's get away. Everything's going to be wonderful. Oh, yeah? God says, and when they're saying that, and when they're continuing to parade with that mindset and that mentality, suddenly there will be destruction. The Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, here's the danger with Christians, right? Christians read a passage like this, and then they freak out. I remember when I was a kid, before I really knew the Lord, I used to watch that old hippie movie, A Thief in the Night, you know? The part about that, about that movie that I hated the most is that dreaded song. You've been left behind. You know, the hippies are playing the guitar. You've been left behind. And in my mind, that was, I just all I could do is hear that dreaded song and just be so scared about being left behind. And when I would call my dad in the middle of the night and he didn't respond, oh my gosh, I've been left behind. And there's lots of Christians that live that way. They're so scared of the rapture happening. They're so scared of being left behind because they don't go on and read the context here of what Paul is saying. Look what he says as he's talking to believers. He says this, but you, who's you? Brethren, you brethren are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. So here's the thing that everybody does. Remember we talked about it this morning? The, just the brutal misappropriation of Scripture that takes place on a regular basis where people come to really bad conclusions. 
Everybody will quote to other people, Christians quoting to other Christians, the day of the Lord's going to come as a thief in the night, so you better get ready because you're not going to expect it. Except for the fact that if you read what was being said here and you read it in direct context, Paul says, you are not those people that will be in darkness. You are going to be those people that will be privy. You're going to be those people that are like, ha, 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 I knew it was coming, let's go. Right? Now there might be a little bit of an element of surprise when you hear the first trumpet. And all of a sudden, my body's light and chiseled like it is now. And all, you know, and I'm just kidding, you know. <laughs> there might be a little bit of surprise there, but then we're going to be like, whoa, I know what this is. Let's go. We're about to see a seven-year party on this earth. And we're not about to be a part of any of it. We know what's coming. I could sit down right now and I could tell you everything that's going on in the eschatological calendar this, this is not, listen, prophecy should not be something that is mysterious to us, folks. It's obvious. It's by some people say, oh, I'll never go through the book of Revelation. It's too difficult of a book to teach. Why? God makes it very clear to us, doesn't he? Right in the first chapter of Revelation, he says, look, I'm going to tell you about the things that, here, that are right now. I'm going to tell you about the things that, current, that are, you know, in the past, the things that are current, the things that are coming. He breaks it up for us. He makes a declaration. We use that as a key, and it's easy. But people get really weird, man. I mean, they look, at, they look at all the descriptions of Revelation, and they try to make it something that it's not, and then they come to weird conclusions and all that. But the God, God, God chose to make it to us very obvious. He said, this is what's happening. This is what's going to take place. We should not be strangers to this. Listen, why do you think it is that when somebody is not only solidly committed to the Lord, there's a, there's, there's a stigma here, not only, or caveat, not only should they be solidly committed to the Lord, but they should be well-versed in the teaching of God's word. If you're well-versed in the teaching of God's word and you know God, you have no reason to be scared of what the upcoming days are. As a matter of fact, you should be excited, you should be thrilled, you should be filled with joy, you should be looking forward to the very moment. It should be the very thing that occupies your mind and your heart, right? It's where you find your hope. My wife and I are in the process of buying a home, and please pray for us because tomorrow looks like the day we close, right? And there is, it has been an 11-month ugly process. Let me tell you, it's not been easy. One of the funny things that this home builder does, these are new homes, you know, new home builders, and they put up a sign in front of each of the homes and they say, welcome to your forever home. And I look at it and I go, it's a nice house, but <laughs> you're clueless. If this is my forever home, then I want out. There's nothing left for me because I just bought my forever home and it's it. That's no life. Hey, it's going to be a great home to live in, and I cannot wait to continue to enjoy the life that I have with my wife on this earth, and that home be a place where God is glorified and used. But folks, my forever home is coming up. It's not now. It's not in 20 years. It's, it, listen, it's when Christ returns for the church, and we are taken up. And boy, let me tell you, when you see that forever home, is going to make any house constructed on this earth look like a pile of garbage. Right? Remember I talked about that, these people that talk about heaven and they, they write these big books about what heaven looks like or whatever. I think those books are useful. They make great stops for your drill, you know, and they can make good fire for your, you know, uh, kindle for your fire and all that stuff. Because when Paul talked about heaven, he says, it's illegal for me to talk about it because I cannot even begin to articulate. One of the most articulate men on the face of the earth. He says, I can't even begin to articulate how beautiful that place is, so I won't even try. I don't know about you, but that's exciting for me. Look, I got, a, I got a beautiful place that God has waiting for me. I have something to look forward to, and this earth has nothing to do with it other than this is the place where I get to be faithful to the Lord to prepare me for what he has for me in eternity. We're not in the dark here. It should not overtake us as a thief. He says, you are children of the light, verse 5, and the children of the day, and we are not of the night nor of darkness. You're children of the light. You run around in the day. You're not running around in the darkness. You know what's, you know what's crazy about the covering of darkness? 
The color of darkness is designed to conceal, completely conceal, that which is ugly. I've never been in a bar before in my life other than in a police uniform. Only time I've been in a bar. Every time I go into one, I just think it's disgusting. I think people have to be drunk to like this place. By the time I end up walking in a club or a bar, the lights are on. You can see all kinds of residue on the ground from people barfing. When you walk, this always used to happen to us in uniform. When you'd walk on the floor of these nightclubs, they're sticky. It smells. And for some reason, people love doing it day in and day out. They hold their little cup of alcohol in their hand, you know, and they come and do it every single weekend. It's the greatest thing in the world for them. Yeah, yeah, because you're under the color of darkness. You sit under the cover of darkness. Darkness covers up the fact that you ugly. It does. But when you walk in the light as he is in the light, you've got nothing to hide. Because what you see is beautiful. What you see is something that you cannot even begin to fathom. And the light is unbelievably cool because as the light begins to shine on whatever object it shines upon, it begins to reveal things that you may have not noticed. I like working on mechanical things, you know? And one of the big musts when you work on things is you've got to have good lighting. Because even the shadow that can be produced by something that's three millimeters high can blind you from getting to what you want to look at. And when the light is cast upon there, it looks completely different, doesn't it? God says, you are children that walk in the light, which means all things are visible. Nothing stands as an obstruction to you. You know exactly where you're going. You know where you've been. And you know for a fact everything that is in front of you in the future. Right? You at least know the big picture. Now, now that you know this, anytime you see a word therefore, you can always insert this for the most part. Now that you are aware of everything that has been stipulated, now that you're aware of everything that has just been communicated to you, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. The dear brother who's from another church, he came here tonight to visit, and um, I was in the, in the room over here, and I was knocked out, you know, because four services every day, and this is regular for me, it always just, just kicks me in the tail, you know, so I just fall asleep, <sighs> you know, that's just me. So I was asleep, <sighs> doing my thing, you know, probably drooling, I don't know comfortable chair back there and these guys walk in and everybody's loud and laughing and whatever and I get woken up by my wife and I look around there's a bunch of people in the room when you're asleep you miss a lot of things don't you you miss a lot of things did you notice that his command to us ready the command to us is follow this let us not sleep as do others i can find a million people in this world that are sleeping on a regular basis i can't find a lot of people that are staying awake this is coming from a guy whose favorite hobby is sleep what he's talking about is this if he's commanding us to stay awake then that must mean that the act of staying awake must indeed be a function that we are capable of adhering to, otherwise he wouldn't command us to do it. Right? It would be absurd, it would be cruel, it would be disrespectful, and it would be unfair for me to walk up to a paraplegic and to say, get up! Would be very insensitive, wouldn't it? Unless it was the Lord wanting to heal him, get up in Jesus' name and he gets up, okay, fine. But to just say that and expect for him to do that? Let me take it a step further. Those of you raising children, 
or have raised children. Shame on you if you spank your baby, your infant, for not being able to get up and get their own food. You all go, oh, that's horrible. But there's a truth that I want you to grasp here. Paul is commanding us to do something that is well within our means, otherwise it would not be commanded to us. So the picture that he says is, unlike those that are around you, you must remain awake. Keep your eyes open and be looking out. Very easy to do, right? I know, by the way, I know, God, I, I know a guy, I can smell a guy a mile away who has a military background or law enforcement background. You want to know why? Because they'll come up to me, especially if they were in combat or they've been in a shooting in their career or whatever, they'll come up to me and they'll go, hey, Pastor James, they'll look me in the eye, they'll shake my hand nice and firm, and then they'll just be scanning behind them, before them, they'll just be looking around, they're just scanning the room. Why? Because they are so used to what they have done their whole lives in choosing to remain awake that they continue to function that way, and they'll be doing that for the rest of their lives. They make a decision to remain awake and not allow something to overtake them by surprise. You can ask my wife, call it shell shock, whatever you want to call it. When we go to a restaurant, I cannot sit in a restaurant without my back being to a wall so that I can cover what's behind me. I've always got to be scanning the room. It's just my thing. It's the way I am. All the years I spent doing that as a chaplain in law enforcement, it's just the way it is. God wants us to be that way spiritually. He wants us to be awake, to be sharp, to be alert, to be looking, looking, looking. Let's look, let's look, let's see, let's see, let's look, let's look, let's look. And then he says this, and I want you to pay attention to this because this is important. He says, but let us watch, here's the command, and not just watch, but watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day, notice this, be sober, putting on the breastplate of love, or putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet and the hope of salvation. Okay, you ready for this? You ready? This is what he says. Ready? Exhortation. Here it is. Sobriety. What's the fastest way to lose your sobriety? Some people say it's drinking alcohol. Some people say it's shooting up heroin. Some people say it's snorting coke. Some people say it's smoking crack. Let me venture to say, let me propose to you the real truth that none of those, none of those take your sobriety away faster than taking your eyes off Jesus. The fastest way to lose your sobriety is to walk in a sinful lifestyle. The fastest way to lose your ability to remain sober is to walk in a way that is not pleasing to God. Why is it that you think that when Paul issues the command to remain sober, the things that he talks about does not deal with the subject of alcohol, although alcohol is probably a bad idea, right? He says this. He says, you need to do what? You need to be putting on the breastplate of faith. Greek word, pisteon, trust in God. You need the love and a helmet for the hope of salvation. Look what he says here, verse 9. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, simple. Here it is. Ready? Here's the summary of the matter. We're not of those people that are going to be overtaken like a thief. Rather, the alternative for us must then be to watch and in our watching, we must remain sober. Let me explain something. You'll notice that Paul does this quite a bit. He will use two commands in conjunction with one another. He will say, watch, and he will say, remain sober. He'll say, watch sober-mindedly. Here's the reason why. You can watch till you're blue in the face. But if you're not sober while you're watching, you're not going to know what you're seeing, and thus you're going to be overtaken. Right? Here's the picture that you get. A drunk guy, he's been drinking. <laughs> he sees a gunman that's right walking up to him and getting ready to put a gun to his face. And go, oh, look at that pretty little thing. <laughs> Whatever. Right? You can watch till you're blue in the face, but if you're not sober, you're not going to know what you're watching. Two things. Watch and keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep close to him. If you are watching while you are remaining sober, folks, let me tell you something. You're not going to go wrong. 
As a matter of fact, can I say this? Every time you turn on the news and every time you see the things that are going on around you, you are going to get more and more excited because your citizenship, and there's been a lot of talk about citizenship lately, right? Your citizenship is not here on this earth. Your citizenship is in heaven. So the command that is being issued here, in essence, to watch and to be sober in your watching, man, let me tell you, and I'll make one more statement and we'll close it off here. When you are sober and when you are watching, there is no, no other life-transforming influence that will exist. There is no other purifying influence that will exist in your life. I heard somebody say that prophecy can somewhat be detrimental to a culture because the more you talk about prophecy, the more it tends to motivate people to kind of be so lofty about things that they forget about the real world that they live. I hate that statement. I think that statement is just about as dark as individuals that make statements like that. I think studying prophecy and I think knowing the word of God in light of prophecy and I think being close to God and his heart in the midst of all of this does this. This is what it does. You ready? It literally makes you excited for everything God has in front of you from day to day. Well, I'm not going to pay this debt because Jesus is coming. No, I better pay this debt before Jesus comes. I don't have to do a great job at work because Jesus is coming soon. I better do a great job because I don't want to get caught right and dirty. Some of you know that reference. <laughs> I want to do everything that I can in this world that God has given me because I know Jesus Christ awaits He's coming for me, and I want to be caught doing his work. I want to be faithful. I want to be fruitful. Amen?